Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Hey, good morning, everybody. Guys, it's good to be with you. How about that fall weather? I don't know, yeah, <laughs> that momentary fall weather. As Eric said, thank you so much, Eric. For We're starting um, the book of Genesis, and we're starting on Connect Sunday. So this coming week, no exaggeration here, maybe just a little because I'm a pastor and we get, we get by with that. Um, we're going to have some 80 groups of people, 80 groups meeting um, all over our city, uh, various parishes, Hundreds of people that call the chapel home will be meeting in a group. As Eric described there, we have community groups, we've got D groups, we've got men's groups, women's groups, support groups. What wasn't mentioned was our college ministry has community groups, our youth ministry has community groups. Those groups will be meeting. And so if you've never been in a group, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to uh, be courageous enough to really investigate what it means to be in a group. Why do I use the word courageous? Um, not because our groups are so intimidating and difficult that you'd have to muster up the courage. I'm saying it because you need to look hard at your calendar. I'll tell you how community groups fit into your daily life. They don't. They don't fit in. You don't look at your calendar and go, oh, there's a spot. I'll just put it right there. You have to say, I'm going to commit. I'm going to commit to this process. And what I've found is that community groups can be difficult. Uh, one person used to say, you know, in a church, life is hard. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. And we often just want to be around people that are just easy and fun. Uh, but that's not where we grow. And that's not where we get to exercise love and patience and maturity. And that happens in groups and so it takes courage to look at your calendar. It takes courage to consider, hey, would I willingly just kind of be a part of this? And I want to encourage you to do it because when you are in a group, many wonderful things happen, particularly those that are around the Word of God and faith. You grow in ways that you can't otherwise. You have conversations that you normally wouldn't have. You share things that you normally wouldn't day to day. You get prayed for and you get to pray for. You get, you know, there's care and concern that happens. So I really want to challenge those of you who are not in a group to prayerfully consider being courageous enough to go, I'm going to step into a group and I'm going to um, try it out. Now, don't try it out for a day. Try it out for a semester or a year or something. Invest in people. It will take courage to do it. And, and what will happen is uh, this week, there'll be new groups. They'll be meeting for the first time. There'll be new people in groups. And some of us love that moment where you get to talk about yourself and tell people who you are. And others of us hate it. Just skip me. Just go around me. But if you're new, you're going to get the question. Hey, tell us about yourself. You know, just share something with, you know, that would be helpful to us. And that's going to vary. Some of us are going to talk about what we do. This is what I do. Some of us are going to talk about what we've done. I'm retired, I quit, you know. Some of us are going to talk about our classes, our major. Some of us are going to share, you know, a, a picture's worth a thousand words. Uh, let me just show you my 
grandkids. That's kind of where I am now. <laughs> look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Yeah, he's eating ice cream. Isn't it cute? Not to anybody but me, but it's still, <laughs> it's still there. Some of us are going to share pictures of our pets or our hobbies and go, oh, let's see. these are my dogs. This is, you know, you name them all and what they do and what food they eat and what vets you see and, and you know, how they're doing and they've got a rat. Way too much information. But that's what we do. I wonder if you were just given the opportunity in a safe environment, in a real environment, what would you choose to share? What would you say, if you really want to get to know me, uh, this, is, this, is, this is me? I wonder what you'd share if you'd say, you know what, if I get angry, this is what makes me angry. And personal stuff, not just what's in the media. You, we want to get to know you. I wonder what you would share. What would you, what pictures would you choose to show? What stories would you choose to tell? How much of your backstory would you choose to tell? Usually that's not in the very first week, right? You don't, you don't start with your backstory. You start just with what's on the surface. Genesis 1 through 11 is God's introduction, not only to the story of the Bible, as we learned, the story, there's, a, there's one story that goes through the Bible and many people Many scholars see Genesis 1 through 11 as the introduction to that story, but we also get to introduced to God, and he's going to tell us specific things about who he is so that we can understand him and get to know him better. So my invitation to you this morning is that you'd be open to understanding who God is, to considering maybe some misunderstandings that you might have about him. A backstory will help you understand the misunderstandings we draw about people. And I would encourage you that as you grow in your understanding of who he is, that you would trust him more. So I've uh, got a little, couple little gifts here. Um, Crossway, I believe it's Crossway, and the, uh, new in, uh, the English Standard Version, the ESV, they put together these cool little books. There's one for every book of the Bible, so you can get 66 of these. One side is the Bible, the other side is a journal, and it's called the Scripture Journal. Boy, there's a, there's a think tank for you. Some people got together and go, what are we going to call it? Let's call it Scripture Journal. You want to have some fun with us. It's just, I've just got a couple here. They're not very expensive. I think they're under $5, uh, but those are for the taken, first come, first serve. If you're a journaler and you already have your journal, leave this for somebody that's beginning. Right? We don't need to, you don't need to double down and try to have two journals and all that kind of stuff. Right? But they're there. And so as we read, oh, it would be great if you could write something down and go, this is what I learned about God that I didn't know. This is what I learned about God that I forgot. This is what I learned about God that I misunderstood. This is what I learned about God that I desperately need to believe. That would be beautiful. So I want to pray for us that you would step into this series that we're starting out and that you would begin to just uh, say, God, I need to understand who you are. And, and it's going to, of course, Genesis 1 to 11 gives us a lot more than that. But this is where God introduces himself. So let me pray for us as we continue and pray for myself. Father God, thank you so very much for the fact that you are a God that doesn't hide from us. You make yourself known in creation. You made yourself known in your word. You made yourself known in your son. I pray that you would help us understand who you are in a way that maybe we haven't fully realized that we could trust you more, that we would trust you more. Would you fill in the gaps of misunderstanding? Would you meet us here today? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be 15 weeks in these first 11 chapters. 
Uh, the 12th chapter begins the discussion of the nation of Israel. So it's really a foundation of who God is, what, what's going on in humanity, what our problems are, and what God's doing about them. So it's an introduction. So in your little outline on the screen behind me, the introduction is how God introduces himself. This has been my, he's going to tell us, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to, this is what I choose to share about you. And the very first thing that we see about him is really, really important. And that's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, we're not going to be in a lot of passages in this introduction, but here it is. In the beginning, God created. He was before the beginning. He's eternal. And he created. Now, for those of you who are like way overachievers that like to read uh, Christian theology and all of this stuff, let me... um, tell you one of the resources that Steve and I'll be using is a book called Biblical Critical Theory, (laughs) How the Story of the Bible Makes Sense for Everyday Life. If you love to read a textbook and not be in class, this is the book for you. I can tell everybody is thrilled about it. I'll just read a small quote from it. If God made everything, then he owns it and is in charge of it. Consequently, if God didn't create the universe and is just, is just one of many inhabitants like we are, then the idea of sin as an offense against God makes no sense. And if sin does not make sense, then salvation doesn't make sense either. And we might as well forget the Bible as a whole. So you can tell where the man who wrote that book, his name is Wilkins, kind of, he gets to the point. If God isn't creator, then none of the story of the Bible makes sense. He starts right there. And we're going to talk more about creation and all that goes on to it. But that's the first thing we learn about God. He he creates. Not only does he create, but he is a deeply personal God. I'm going to jump down to verse 27 for that. This is what it says. It's behind me. So God created mankind. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature. He is personal. He makes human beings to be in relationship with them, and he's loving. It says, and he blessed them. To bless is not only to bestow a gift, but to to give purpose. He gives them purpose. And that that makes all the difference in the world. I'm not only here by a loving God, but I have a purpose for being here. And not only is he loving, he he reveals himself. He's not hiding. He's not hiding from him. And he said to them, a God who speaks. That was the point of our Bible series. The Bible is from God. He speaks to us through his word, through his son, through creation. He's not hiding from us. He's there. And he said, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He's given a purpose. We'll get more into that. And he's a God who is sent. Throughout the book of Genesis, we'll see there are times where he manifests in a visual way, often called the angel of the Lord. Well, angel means sent one. And we'll see why that's important. Here's a critical question for you in your day-to-day life. It may not feel that way, but it really is. And that is this, how do you view God? How do you view God? Do you have a high view of God or a low view of God? Do you view God as accessible 
and interested in what you're doing are elusive and not? Do you view God as angry or loving, merciful or mean? Do you have a respect for God like a mountain climber would have awe for Mount Everest? Or is God in your mind something manageable, something small, something you know you can just deal with? Your view of God really affects, I would say, everything about you. W.A. Tozier in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, said this on the screen behind you. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion is ever greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. He goes on to say, well, then the greatest question for the church and for men and women, the most important fact is not what they do at any given time, but what deep, in, deep down in their heart, how do they perceive God? He's creator. He's loving. He's just. He's accessible. Or is he all the opposite of that? <laughs> how do you view God? I mean, when you think about it. When you have a problem in your life, is your first assumption is God must be punishing me. Or if you have a long string of good days, you think it's only a matter of time before something goes wrong. And your view of God is always a little tentative. Or do you view God as saying in your heart of hearts, he's a father who loves me and desires to bless me. Wow, that's a totally different. He's a, he's a loving father that wants to see me grow up. Having been a father, now a grandfather, did I already mention that I was, would you like to see some pictures? Uh, you know, it's, it's, you never ever appreciate the, the, the hard work that a 30-year-old dad is doing in trying to form uh, character in you as a, as a five-year-old until you try to do it yourself as a 30-something. And then you're like, ooh. And then when you watch your 30-something and try to do it, then you go, this is difficult. And you want, you know, and, and so, so when you feel the discipline of the Lord, do you see it as love or do you still resent it? Do you see it as an opportunity for growth or do you still recoil? How do you view who God is in your life? It really is fundamental. And this introduction is going to help us understand that these chapters are going to help us understand that. The introduction, these 11 chapters, also show us what we need to know about God, humanity, and salvation, and how those three work together, the attributes of God. It does, God doesn't start out and say, hey, I'm good. I'm good. You need to pay attention. He shows us. He demonstrates. Everything he creates is full of goodness and love and beauty. It is good, he declares. And so he does these things. If you were sitting around a campfire, talking about the origins of the universe, because that's what we do, right, when we're sitting around the campfire. If we were doing that in the far ancient East and we were listening to other people tell us their worldview, of, it would go something like this. There were gods fighting in the heavens and humanity would be incidental. Now, this is a highly reduced kind of version. Or Humanity was created for the pleasure of God to, to mess with to, like a cat with a mouse. And then when they get to you and say, tell us about your God. If you were to read in, the, in that time frame when Genesis came on the scene, 
they would just go, are you kidding me? There's a God who is good and, cre- and is interested in beauty and is interested in life. And he created us not to take things from us, to, but to bless us. That's a radically different God. As Christians, sometimes I think we've been just lulled asleep. There's no enthusiasm at all for this God and how he relates to humanity. So as I prayed for you, here's another question. What are you missing in your understanding of God? What are you missing? If we take God to be personal, and he wants us to know him, like any relationship, it it comes with some self-understanding. One of the things I love to do is uh, do premarital counseling. I love to see couples that are madly in love and, and can't wait for their wedding day. And I was talking to a couple this week. And I'm like, are you guys talking about this? No, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's time to talk about it. Because, you know, after the fact, you're not going to talk about it much. And the implied thing is we know each other enough. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. Anybody that has married or been in a relationship any length of time knows that, man, I, I totally misread that. And my sweet wife, oh my gosh, she's just, she's the schnizzle. She's just awesome. But she's a moving target. There's no question about it. What worked yesterday doesn't work today. What worked last night doesn't work. What worked before the third quarter doesn't, no. It's just constantly moving. And so you want to grow and you want to learn. What about you? What have you misunderstood about God? What, what could you understand like a maturing relationship that you, what you missed? misunderstood about him of course god and humanity is going to tell these this introduction is going to tell us that humans are extremely valuable because we are image bearers we're made in the image of god hugely valuable and that we have calling so let me go back to verse verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1 and he, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Those are all directives. I want image bearers all over the planet. I want my image everywhere. We have a purpose. Humanity is not just left to kind of walk around and wonder. We have purpose to our life. And we have a significant problem in our life. The Bible is going to explain it as sin. The theologians call it the fall of man, where we willingly disobeyed God, and the consequences of that are extremely far-reaching and deeply personal. They separate us from God, but they also impact the way we relate to one another. Men are told in these opening chapters, because of sin, what once came easy for you is going to become difficult. Women are told what once was I don't know if it was easy or hard, but it's going to be hard, childbearing. Men and women are told, hey, you're going to have struggle in your marriage. I'll just tell you right now, it's coming. That's a consequence of sin. And embedded in all of that, dripped down in all of that, is the hope of salvation. Chapter 3, verse 15, where God is talking to the serpent who deceived Eve, and we're going to get into who that is and how that serpent got into this perfect world later. But it says this, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to to create hatred for you to her and her to you. 
And between your offspring and hers, and that offspring ultimately will be Jesus Christ, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The victor is in God. So all the way in these very beginning chapters, we see the hope. Every time humans mess up, God steps up. And if you miss that in the Old Testament, you're missing something really wonderful. Really wonderful. He steps up and he steps in and he provides and he looks for solutions to the problems that we create. When Adam and Eve sinned and, and they kind of their eyes were opened and there they were standing each other naked and they're like, ooh, let's get some clothes on. Hurry up. And they went and found some fig leaves. You know, if it was up to me, I'd probably be poison ivy. There's a lot of it. You know, just wrap it and, you know, it'd be miserable. God comes along, he kills animals, he makes clothes, he, ma- he provides. It's small, it's simple, it's real. When the world had gone off the hinges, and God says, this is just out of control, I'm coming with judgment. He didn't say to Noah, find a big board and hold on, buddy. He said, no, I'm coming, and here's how you can be prepared, because I'm going to make a way. I'm going to offer salvation. Here are the plans for the boat, the ark. And here's the time frame to get ready. It just, every time we mess up, God steps up. I mean, it wouldn't be a big surprise to get to the New Testament and go, oh my gosh, there's Jesus. There's God's solution. Once again, he's caring for us. He's making a way for us. He's providing salvation for his people. This is all in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 through 11. It's very important. Something else that we'll see that I hope is really helpful to you, it's what I'm particularly uh, excited about, is it gives us the building blocks for a worldview. The introduction gives us the building blocks for God's worldview. The worldview. Now, Christians are constantly warned, don't get caught up in the wrong thing. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, the little church in the area of Colossae, they were being infiltrated with, with false things. <clears throat> and this is what Paul said to them. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental uh, spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. Things that depend, your salvation depends on other than Christ is what it's getting at. Don't be made captive. And we have so much information coming at us all the time. And here's what I don't, I think many Christians have forgotten. It comes at an angle. Whether it's cartoons or literature or art, it's all coming with a worldview. And it's all coming with a, a, a basis of belief. It doesn't matter if we're talking about what constitutes marriage, how to form a marriage, how to end a marriage, what constitutes gender, what constitutes being a man, what constitutes being a woman. All of this is coming at us all the time. And it's, and it's forming, a lot of times, our worldview. And, and underneath it are some things that you may not agree with. And you just don't, maybe you don't even notice it. Again, the biblical critical theory, how the Bible's unfolding story makes sense of the modern culture. The author says, reality, ultimate reality, he gives four definitions. Ultimate reality is personal, not impersonal. 
So what do you do with all that's personal? Do you subjugate it to the impersonal materialistic world? Or do you take the materialistic world out there and say it, it, it's connected to something personal? That's a good way to look at it. He says it's absolute. Ultimate reality is absolute from a biblical point of view. It's not, it's not just um, fragmented into different standards of this is true for you and that's true for you. And you hear things like your truth and my truth. Well, what about the truth? Or as some people call it, true truth. <laughs> right? We're constantly looking for language to go, is it absolute or is it just, is it, is it you know, different? He goes on to say that ultimate reality is also relational. Is it, is it just individuals or groups or relationships that form society? Or is there, is there a love that's out there that's universal? Helps us think about it. And then lastly, ultimate reality is love, is love. And what we'll see is that there's a huge contrast between the Trinitarian God who sees the, the world and the universe as something to be recipients of his love. And whether you look at ancient pagan religions or modern expressions of life today, they often say, no, it's about violence. And the way to get right, we see it, we see it everywhere. The increase in violence. When all else fails, the strongest person wins. The person with the biggest weapon wins. And is that the worldview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis? No, it is not. So I'm going to put, a, put some questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to engage with them internally. Hold up, don't go yet. They're going to start reading that. And uh, yeah, go back. Yeah, can you go back? Yeah, there we go. Here, look right here. No, this goes. Um, and I want you to just, I just want you to think about the questions. You're not going to immediately say to yourself, oh, I know my answer. Because a lot of times we don't think about these things, but we live them out. So here's my question for you. Are they reasonable? To some extent, are they rational? I'm not trying to say that we need to park everything within rational thought. Because much of the Christian worldview kind of pushes, doesn't mean it's irrational, but it pushes against it, against the scientific mind. Because if you believe that God transcends and brings miracle, well, that's, that, that pushes against what's observable, repeatable. But we do live in a, ra many of us live in a rational thought. And lastly, is it livable? Can you live within your worldview or do you pick and choose, get on and off of it as you need? All right, so that's, that's a bit of a setup. Here's the next setup. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you need to know that what you view as the, the reality and the way, you, it, way it was formed in your life is not going to be the reality for your children or your grandchildren. And we'll get to what to do about that in just a minute. But it won't be. They will view things very differently. And you've, if you've got teenagers, then you've already bumped into it. You can't say that. That's no longer true. Wow. Okay. All right. Here are the questions on the screen behind me. How did we get here? Are we created? The creation in the universe. Are we accidental? Are, oh, is there purpose? Where are we going? What's the meaning of history? Is it circular? Is it ongoing? 
or is it moving in a direction? What is the nature of reality, both physical and spiritual, or both? Is it subjective? Is it objective? What's the nature of, of God or transcendent reality? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he aloof? Let's go to the next screen. What's the nature of truth? Objective, true truth, or subjective, true here, not true there. True here, not true there. What's the nature of human beings? Are they basically good? Are they basically bad? Is it somewhere in between? What's the definition of male? What's the definition of female? These are all, all issues of everyday life. What happens to human beings when they die? Is that it? Is it over? And what guidelines do, uh, determine human behavior? So let's go back to the first set, because I could tell some people were stuck on that one. Right? These, are the, these are questions that's, that Genesis 1 through 11 are going to bring answers to, and these are the questions that form your worldview. Now, here's the thing. You can lay a foundation for a worldview, and it's going to be challenged by the storms of life. So you don't just set it once and you're done. Because when you go through great loss, and the reason for our, our group on loss is because it will shake the foundations of your worldview. And you have to kind of keep working it. You have to keep working at it ongoingly. So if your children or grandchildren don't have a biblical worldview, neither did you. Let's just be real clear about that. You move into it. You grow into it. You, you learn. Because we're not just, it, we may not be just born with it. That's why we need to go to the Word. That's why it says in, um, in well, here's the question. What is your worldview? I left that out. What is your worldview? That's what we want to help in this introduction. Form. So that it is not only consistent and reasonable, but it's livable. So you don't get to the end of your life and go, everything I've really believed, I really don't believe, which happens. So was your life lived as a lie or was it lived as a, you know, in truth and with freedom? And so this is a verse you heard last week. We say it a lot here. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, the worldview that's around you but be transformed. So it's a battle. It's a battle. If we, if we have a, a command not to be conformed to it, we can be uh, assured that we're going, it's pressing in on us all the time. And how do we fight that? By being transformed by the renewing of your mind, being in the Word of God. Being able, then we'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. We'll know His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's an ongoing I need to be transformed. That's passive. It's happening to me as I come to God's Word and as I come to God's Spirit and I say, God, help me understand. And where have I misunderstood you? Help, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ongoing. What happens is we're in His Word. That's why we have a, a chapel Bible reading plan. That's why we just want you in the Word of God to remind you of the truth of God. Now, this is important important because um, this is what the introduction does. Now, we're not going, the goal is not to just get in the Word and have a bunch of facts. The goal is to get the Word into us so it transforms us and begins to shape the way we think about life until it becomes second nature. 
And this is where I, this is, I, sometimes I, I feel like I'm so far from that. I, I want to be able to see injustice and go, stop! And not have to think about it. And, and notice when love is necessary and love and not have to be calculated about it. That's what happens with me. Now, when I hear something and I go, that's not right, but I don't say anything because I'm not sure how. All of this begins to shape us. And here's what happens when the word of God begins to form you and then begin to form us and our worldview, then that worldview is more evident to the people who come in. Oh, at the chapel, their worldview is that love is supreme and it's an it's a acting force in the universe and it's evident in how they love one another. And so when you come into that church, you will, you will experience love. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's very accessible. Here's a qualifier. Genesis 1 to 11 doesn't answer every question that we have. It's not. We're not going to do that. We're not going to give you a solid answer on young earth or old earth. What? Nope. For two reasons. There's a lot of opinions, right? So the opinions vary between very well-meaning men and women. And two, we want to focus on why was Genesis 1 to 11 given to us. It's to introduce the story of the Bible. It's to introduce God. It's not a scientific textbook like we would write a scientific textbook. Nor is it a history textbook. So while we will talk about the Nephilim, and if you don't know who that is, uh, that's okay. It's a strange little chapter. And we will talk about it. We'll give you some options. But our goal is to show you who God is, the big blocks, so that it can begin to shape your worldview. Now, while this may feel, can feel maybe today, hopefully not each week, can feel academic, it is not supposed to. This is where we live life. These are the things that we find ourselves either standing on or near or truths we've abandoned because we just, we don't know how to factor them into our life or family anymore. And it would be a deep challenge. So if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this from the introduction. Genesis 1 to 11 shows us, the introduction shows us that God is, is coming after you coming after you. He is a pursuer. He is one that is sent. He is constantly pursuing us. He didn't create the world because he needed it. He didn't create humanity because he was lonely. He wants the world to see his goodness. He wants his world to experience his goodness. He wants us to do the same. And when we sin, and Adam and Eve sin, guess what? God pursued God pursued. He showed up. He sought them out. Life gets hard because of the sin that wrecks almost every aspect of our life. God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. He's pursuing us. Why? Because he wants to restore all things. And he wants to put everything in order. So I want to end where it's going. And, and, and believing that history is his story and it's moving in a direction. And so that is going to be Romans chapter 7. This is the Apostle John telling us what he saw. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. God intends to bring all things back to where he started by restoring all things, redeeming and making it all perfect. And here we are at the end and all the nations that will be scattered in chapter 11 of Genesis will be gathered together and they worship him. Verse 9, it says, And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen! This is where it all ends. God is a pursuing God. And we find ourselves, don't we, right in the middle of the story. We're not in the first 11 chapters. We're right in the middle of it. And the, in the greatest way that God pursued us is with his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 said it this way. God demonstrates his love for us, his pursuit for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were separated, while we were disinterested, Christ died for us. I'm pursuing I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing. He's always pursuing. So I want to end with this question. Have you felt that God is pursuing you? And as I thought about that question, I, I like the question, and as I thought about it, I, I had these thoughts. If someone is pursuing you, say in a dating relationship, well, it's very flattering to have someone give you attention and affection gifts, right? You, you hear those footsteps and you go, oh, this is an admirer. However, if the alley's dark and you don't know what's coming, are you afraid that you, because you, you've messed up that you're being pursued because of judgment that's coming? Then you walk a little faster. But there is another situation where we are pursued and we need, um, when we need rescue. When we need rescue, we don't, we don't just think, oh, it's admiring, or we don't think it's just judgment. We stop and we cry out for help. And we're so grateful that somebody came and looked for us. We'll see God do that in the second chapter of Genesis, looking for the wayward creation. He's doing the same thing today. Have you felt like God is pursuing you? Hey, could you just stop for a minute? Would you just turn around for a minute? Would you just, would you just give me a, just stop? I don't, I don't know. But I can, I, can, I can honestly tell you that if you will stop and turn to him, what you will find will be loving, will be truthful, will be personal and relational, will be absolutely true. But it will require you to stop moving away from him. The God that we're going to discover in the first 11 chapters, the God that we worship, the God who makes a way, the God who provides, is still doing all those things every day. If we will just stop, bow the knee of our heart and respond to him. If you have something to confess and unload and repent of, do that. If you have a fear or an insecurity or uh, an anxiety, 
put those down too. If you have, uh, I don't know, I'm ignorant of this, I'm not sure, that's okay. You can bring that too. And of course, you can bring the joy and the worship because he is worthy of it all. What we will discover inside, in, in, in addition to all these truths is that the God of the Bible, if he were to reveal himself fully, would be all-consuming. It would kill us. It's too much. It's too much for us to comprehend. It's too heavy. It's too, it's too vast. It's too glorious. It's too bright. It's too strong. It's too everything. And so the more I study about God, in a sense, the, the less I understand. But the more that we come to understand him, the greater our concept of him is, and, the, and it, it's overwhelming in a different sense, not because it's crushing me, but because it's in love directed to me. Now I've just, I'm just overwhelmed. We're, we love to watch tennis. Oh, my goodness. And so we've been watching the U.S. Open, and we have been cheering on Coco. She won the singles women's tournament yesterday. She's 19 She's an American, so that was kind of fun to have an American win the American tournament. We've been watching her since she was 15. And you know what happens. Those ten, they, they know everything that's going on. They've been pursuing this my whole life. I love when a 19-year-old says, when I was a kid, <laughs> you still are a kid. She, she hit the, the winning shot, the passing shot, and then she just fell down on the ground. And she started crying. And, you know, the whole 28,000 people are watching and the cameras are zooming in. She managed to pull herself together. I just, I was just, she was just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with the magnitude of all things. And probably the sweetest thing was to watch her try to meander her way through the audience while they don't have a direct access to her coach. I don't know. And she comes back down and she knelt down. She knelt down at her little chair and she put her hands together and she put her head on her hands and she prayed. And New York had no idea what to do with that. And as you watched her lips move and her lungs shake and the camera fades to commercial, if you're a praying person, you know exactly what's going on. She's just giving thanks. If you're not a praying person, you kind of wish the cameras would stay there. Maybe I can learn something. So after the whole thing's over, you know the announcers, they have to ask you everything uh, they can think of that's going to make it awkward. Well, you were praying. Tell us about that. I don't pray to win. I pray to do my best. And I'm so blessed. And I thought, wow. Way to go, Coco. Way to go. So it was so much fun. But the more I understand about him, the more overwhelmed I am, the more eager I am to fall to my knees, and the more, the more prone I am to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are worthy 
of my breath, of my life. Thank you. I'm always surprised at his graciousness. I've never overcome the grace of God. And I don't think you will either. If you feel God pursuing you, stop. Bow the knee of your heart. Open yourself to him. And you, like me, like Coco maybe, won't have the words. And when you don't know what to say, you can always say thank you. You can always say you're worthy. You can always say, I don't know what to say. You can always know that the Spirit of God in you is praying when you don't have the words. This is what we're going to get into in Genesis 1 to 11. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so very much that you don't leave us to just try to figure it all out. That you, that you are available to us. That you've made yourself known to us. And I pray that we would grow more deeply in our understanding, more humble in our ignorance, more confident in your goodness, more eager in our obedience. Because you are worthy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.